This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, an update on U.S.-China relations. Hello, I'm Rick Pantaleo, sitting in as your host for Carol Castiel. It goes without saying that U.S.-China relations have always been somewhat complex over the years, with their ups and downs. Tensions between the two countries have increased recently due to several factors. The development that most believe has escalated this friction is the recent Chinese balloon flyover the United States and President Biden's subsequent order to shoot the balloon down over U.S. territory. But there are other developing and long-standing tension points as well. My guests for today's program are Yun Sun, a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the China Program at the Stimson Center based in Washington, D.C. And Dean Cheng, currently a non-resident senior fellow with the Potomac Institute for Policy Studies and a senior advisor with the U.S. Institute of Peace. He recently retired after 13 years with the Heritage Foundation. Both are joining me today via Microsoft Teams. Yun Sun and Dean Cheng, could you each give me your thoughts as to the state of U.S.-China relations before the recent China balloon incident? Let's go first to Yun Sun. That's a terrific question. I would say that with the Bali summit between President Xi and President Biden last November, people were seeing some hope potentially for this improvement of relations or putting a floor to the U.S.-China relations. And to my knowledge, I think in December and in January, both governments, especially State Department and the Chinese Foreign Ministry, worked pretty hard to try to identify where that floor is and how to make it happen. But everything lead to the Blinken trip to China which was canceled a day before it was supposed to happen because of the balloon issue. So I would say that starting with last November, there was some hope, but even people's expectation about that improvement was pretty low because, well, Xi Jinping is still the same guy. He still wants the same thing. So the fundamentals for the U.S.-China relations have not really changed because of that one summit. But people were hoping for cosmetic, tactical, or technical improvement of relations until that prospect was completely destroyed by the balloon long instant. Dean, your comments. I'm actually even less optimistic than <laughs> I think that U.S.-China relations at this point are probably close to as bad as they've ever been post-1979 when the United States recognized the People's Republic of China. Tariffs continue to be in place, clearly hobbling U.S.-Chinese economic ties. There is now an active move by some key companies to move out of China. On the security side, tensions even before the balloon incident remained high with the Chinese hypersonic tests, the Chinese reaction to the Pelosi visit, Chinese actions in the South China Sea. And then more broadly speaking, there are the fundamental diplomatic issues that have arisen because of China's unwillingness to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which clearly puts it at odds with the United States and the broader West in general. So I think that, yes, there are moments where things brighten up a little bit, but underneath that, there's no real evidence that relations are improving. And the reality is that neither side has much incentive at this point to risk political capital and risk appearing weak with regards to the other side. Now, I guess we should talk about the elephant in the room, as they call it, and that's the balloon incident. Myung-sun, do you have any insight into what the balloon was being used for? Was it actually a spy balloon or was it a weather balloon, as China indicated? 
Oh, that's a great question. And I think FBI is still conducting its investigations, forensic studies of the remains of the debris from the balloon. But I would say that in the Chinese experience, a lot of these things are actually dual use, right? They don't clearly label it as military, or they don't clearly label it as civilian. But you do know that the balloon has been, according to the statement made by the Chinese government, they were used for study. What, what does that mean? It means it collects information, right? What kind of information does it collect? And what is the information being used for? I think that's where the Chinese system gets really tricky that a balloon that is supposedly collecting climate information, which is a big if in this case, those information will still be shared with the Chinese government and with the Chinese military. That's what the dual-use technology or the dual-use purpose that's really popular in the Chinese system. And the beauty of it, I think, for Beijing, it does offer some level of deniability when the instance is disclosed. They could say that, oh, look, this is actually a civilian balloon. Well, within the Chinese system, there's no such a thing as strictly civilian. If the government or the military wants to get their hands on it, which in this case is, I would say that is the best assumption of their intention and what has happened. The Chinese government will be able to get access to the information that the balloon has been collecting. But it does reflect how the Chinese system has been formulated in a way that makes it extremely difficult for the outsiders to tell exactly what the nature of the balloon is and who is the mastermind behind the balloon, who's managing the balloon and where the information goes. So we can only assume that the information it does collect goes to the Chinese government. Dean Cheng, what are some of the ramifications with U.S.-China relations over launching the balloon and the U.S. shooting it down? And that includes Secretary of State Blinken's scheduled trip to China being indefinitely postponed. Well, I think that it's useful to recall here that the PRC has something of a track record of engaging in what one might consider provocative actions on the eve, or in some cases at the same time, as high-level visits. So when Secretary of Defense Robert Gates went to China, the Chinese tested their J-20 stealth fighter pretty much as he was landing, something that certainly aroused his ire. But this was then followed by leaks in the Chinese state-owned press and internal social media of the J-31 when Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta visited. And then when Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel visited, the Chinese happily displayed the J-15 carrier-borne fighter. So the Chinese balloon incident occurring literally on the eve of Blinken's visit would seem to fit this pattern. I think that in each case, what is notable is that the American side, rather than turning around or canceling the visit or saying no, basically went ahead. Now, in the case of the Blinken visit, it did get canceled, but only after local press in Montana wound up breaking the story. And according to the NORTHCOM commander here in the U.S., they had been tracking the balloon for days, but hadn't publicly discussed it. So had the local newspaper not reported it, it's quite possible that that Secretary of State Blinken would have gone ahead with his visit. And I think that the Chinese take the measure of the American side by their response to such one might term provocative actions. The Chinese response to the shootdown is itself fascinating because the Chinese attitude seems to be, how dare you, sir, shoot down our balloon as it transits your airspace. Now, one need not engage in flights of fantasy to ask if a balloon flew over Chinese sovereign airspace over Wuhan or Beijing or ICBM fields in Western China, would the PLA Air Force hesitate to shoot down such a thing? 
And it's fascinating how in this case, as in the South China Sea and elsewhere, China's attitude seems to be one set of rules for me and a different set of rules for thee. Let's move on to the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, and they held their first meeting this week. Yansan, can you comment on this committee and what they propose to do? Because I believe that its chairman said that their goal is to provide a map for America to selectively decouple the two economies. Well, decoupling has already been under the way even before this committee was created or before the Biden administration inaugurated. So decoupling started, I would say, with the Trump administration. And it has been, well, more or less regarded as a selective decoupling, especially in the high-tech industry. Because in terms of other industries, if we look at the U.S.-China trade, it actually has not gone down after this decoupling started. And there are still mutual complementarity between the Chinese economy and American economy. It's just a matter of uh, what are the components that in terms of the economic engagement, especially given the Chinese practice of commercial espionage and the Chinese way of stealing U.S. technologies, what are the harmful components that we need to protect our economy and protect our economy from a national security point of view? And at least when we look at the impact of the high-tech industry, especially in terms of semiconductor chips, and how it has basically strangled or put Chinese companies like Huawei in an extremely difficult position. I have to say that this policy or this strategy has been fairly successful in these regards. And now the Chinese are coming to the realization that in terms of high-tech, especially semiconductor chips, U.S. is already maintaining at least one generation lead to China. And they have not figured out a way, to my knowledge, as for how to make up that gap. So in terms of the Select Committee on China, I think we all understand that with a Republican-dominated House, their position is going to be more aggressive on China. And we will see how the administration is going to react to that, especially when the policy that the Congress is pushing for touches some of the issues that the administration may find uncomfortable or find difficult with. And one example that comes to mind, it was even before the Republicans took over the House, it was a Nancy Pelosi visit of Taiwan last summer, because we know the administration was not terribly happy or welcoming to that particular visit, but they were not stopping it either. So I think for this China Select Committee and its agenda, I think more investigation into what China has been doing is definitely called for. Things like the balloon incident and what the Chinese decision making behind those incidents look like. As for how that's going to reflect on the executive branch, their China policy, I think that's going to be a domestic political struggle that we're going to witness. Let's take a break. You're listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. I'd like to remind you that Encounter is available for free download at voanews.com slash encounter. You can also find our show on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. And be sure to connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel, VOA, one word, or Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel. Now let's get back to our program. Today, we're getting an update on U.S.-China relations. I'm Rick Pantaleo, sitting in for Carol Castiel. My guests are Yan Sun, a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the China Program at the Stimson Center based in Washington, D.C., and Dean Cheng, currently a non-resident senior fellow with the Potomac Institute for Policy Studies and a senior advisor with the U.S. Institute of Peace. He recently retired after 13 years with the Heritage Foundation. 
Before our break, Yen Sun brought up the technology aspect of U.S.-China relations. I understand that there is a kind of an escalating tech war going on between the two nations. Also, the U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee just voted to advance bill that would clear the way for President Joe Biden to ban China's very popular social media platform, TikTok, in the U.S. In a report by Reuters, I also understand that the White House has given U.S. government agencies 30 days to rid the TikTok application from government computers. Dean Cheng, what are your thoughts on this? Well, certainly the United States and China are an intense technology competition. When people talk about technology, the first thing that comes to mind is inevitably chips, computers, cell phones, things like that, information communications technology. That absolutely matters. But it's useful to consider that China announced its Made in China 2025 program in 2015. And Made in China 2025 is in some ways a declaration of decoupling in 10 major technology areas. Microchips is one of them, but other areas include agricultural machinery, maritime shipping, so not naval technology, but merchant shipping, and medical technologies. So these are all areas that China wants to be independent in. It wants to be able to be fairly to very self-sufficient in, but it also wants to export. So it's a classic mercantilist economic theory. So in this regard, the U.S., which has generally been a champion of free trade, is finding itself in an intense competition across multiple different technology areas with the PRC. Software is another one of these areas. And what is striking about TikTok is, as the Chinese owners of TikTok have admitted, data is stored in China, which means that data can be accessed by the Chinese government under their national security laws, cybersecurity laws, et cetera. All data can be accessed by the PRC government. So data that is stored there and that in turn raises questions about the security of any cell phone that has TikTok on it. Now you might think, well, what is a 14-year-old likely to have on their cell phone that would matter? But if they are the son of a senator or the daughter of a senior intelligence official or a senior military officer, there's going to be emails, there's going to be interactions and communications. And that's the sort of thing that could raise serious security questions. Yeah, some an ongoing area of serious yet complex contention between the U.S. and the PRC is the dispute over territorial issues in the South China Sea. China claims sovereignty over virtually the entire South China Sea, and the United States sees it as international waters. Can you bring us up to date on this issue and its implications? Well, the most recent round of tension, I think it has been going on for more than a decade now. I have not followed this issue very closely, I have to be honest on this. But in terms of the Chinese reaction, I would say that the Taiwan issue is much higher on China's priority compared to South China Sea. And when the Chinese look at their security environment in the West Pacific, I think for the year of 2023, they are more concerned about North Korean provocation rather than the potential conflict with the United States in the in the maritime domain. And of course, there's also the issue of Japan and South Korea and what their policy will look like. But I would say that in China's threat perception, I wouldn't say that South China Sea is on the top of their list in the year of 2023. Okay, since you mentioned uh-huh. Taiwan, let's bring up a recent areas of where U.S. officials went to Taiwan to visit. I believe a Pentagon official recently went to Taiwan. You had mentioned former Speaker Pelosi visiting over the past summer, and I believe another congressperson also visited recently. How does Taiwan play into the relationship between U.S. and China? 
I would say that U.S.-China relations have already undergone tectonic changes. So that inevitably reflects in terms of the change of U.S. attitude towards Taiwan. If in the past, the U.S. attitude has been, okay, well, we don't take a position on the issue of sovereignty, and we do, our position is that the solution of the Taiwan issue must be achieved peacefully. But now, I think there's a the growing question in the mind of the U.S. strategist, which is why should we let China unite with Taiwan? Especially when the Chinese side is not able to provide a satisfactory answer as for what the political future and the political arrangement will be between mainland China and Taiwan. And I think that's a legitimate question, because if you look at the Taiwanese public opinion poll, people who actually support unification with mainland is in the absolute minority. Dean, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, the People's Republic of China has been criticized for its response to the breakout of the coronavirus. And while media was reporting that the coronavirus jumped from animals to humans in a Wuhan China market, conspiracy theorists were saying that the deadly virus was the result of a lab leak in China. Meanwhile, the U.S. Energy Department issued a low-confidence report that suggests COVID-19 likely resulted from an accidental lab leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and other U.S. agencies are reportedly at odds with that finding. What can you tell us about the recent report and the origin of the coronavirus? Well, I think the origin of the coronavirus is going to be a very difficult question to resolve for years, simply because the PRC has been extremely uncooperative, not just with the United States, but with the World Health Organization in investigating what the origins of it were. Despite their own regulations and requirements put in place after the SARS epidemic of 2003, China's own reporting at the time that COVID first started to emerge, November of 2019, was that their own system failed to abide by its own rules, reporting both internally and internationally about the outbreak of what was then still called the novel coronavirus. Chinese doctors who were reporting up the system, we have this strange new disease, were persecuted. One was made to formally apologize that he had been engaging in rumor mongering. And then the Chinese actually apologized to his family after he died while trying to help patients. It's notable here that FBI Director Christopher Wray, I believe this morning or yesterday, came out and said that the FBI happens to also agree that with the lab leak hypothesis now upon review. So what was once sort of an out there conspiracy theory now seems to have at least a couple of U.S. intelligence agencies agreeing with it. I think what really is the big problem here is that the Chinese continue to not cooperate with the investigations. The data that they have provided has been problematic at best and has generally not, I don't think anyone believes that they have had a full and complete disclosure of data of the history of the disease in China. Going to you, Yansun, let's talk about China's role in the Russia-Ukraine war. China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, recently visited Moscow and met with Russian President Putin and other top officials. It was the first visit to Russia by a Chinese official since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began a year ago. Do you see Russia and China getting closer over the situation? Well, I think it depends on which aspect we're talking about. If we look at economic relations, China-Russia trade increased by about 29 percent last year. 
So one could say that economically, those two countries have already become closer. And especially if you look at the Russian export to China, it increased by 43%. And you could say that, well, that's revenue creation, that China has been indirectly or directly assisting Russia in this war effort against Ukraine. But if you look at the political relations, I think the picture is much more mixed, that the Chinese have been, well, they try to play this neutrality role in the Russian war in Ukraine. But in reality, they also understand that, that what Russia has done in Ukraine, it does violate the UN Charter, which is why every single time Chinese foreign ministry is asked that question, they refuse to provide an answer. That's Russia and what Russia has done violate the UN Charter and the principles of UN Charter. I think the Chinese have a difficult time justifying what Moscow has done. And so far, there has not been a bilateral meeting between Xi Jinping and Putin since the beginning of the war. They have met at multilateral occasions, such as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Samarkand last year. But there has not been a visit by Xi Jinping to Moscow or Putin's visit to Beijing. So some use that as a sign that well, China is trying to cool off that political tie a little bit. But now we also know that Wall Street Journal reported recently that Xi Jinping is indeed planning a trip to Moscow in either late April or the beginning of May. When that trip happens, China will be under severe international criticism for providing this support or even just rhetorical or diplomatic support to Russia's behavior. That's why I think the Chinese top diplomat Wang Yi at the Munich Security Forum and his following trip to Moscow, as well as the Chinese announced the peace proposal that was announced Friday last week. I think what the Chinese are trying to play is that they're trying to throw out a possibility that China is trying to play a mediation role in order to buy some goodwill with European countries and with the West, in order to basically lay the ground for Xi Jinping's upcoming direct engagement with Russia. So far, it has not been successful at all. I mean, for people who really follow the issue, no one that I know of really buys the Chinese proposal. In fact, the very popular comment is that, well, China did not even try to pretend to put out a decent proposal because what they proposed is essentially, well, have a ceasefire, have political dialogue. Well, where do we begin? Who should start? And what about the substance of a peace settlement? The Chinese answered none of those questions. So, like I said, calling for peace and calling for talks is cheap and easy. Easy. But on the substance question, what the peace will look like and how to get there, the Chinese would not touch it with a 10-foot pole. Dean Chang, your comments. I think that the Chinese proposal was very interesting. Uh, as Yunsun said, it was very short on any kind of specifics. But when we look at the Chinese messaging around the proposal, the foremost Chinese criticism was that the West had imposed unilateral sanctions, and those had to be lifted on Russia. And two is that the West has been supplying Ukraine with arms, and that needs to stop. So when we look at that, what we see is, I think, a Chinese proposal that in terms of the formal aspects is mostly a nothing burger. But around it are elements that really are pushing for the West to separate itself from Ukraine and to reduce the pressure on Moscow. Now, is that likely to happen? No, but I think it's an interesting political signal, again, before Xi Jinping's visit, that the Chinese can then refer to to say, look, at the end of the day, we are certainly not criticizing you very much. But as important is a signal to the West if we're not honest brokers, in your view, you're even less honest brokers because you are clearly engaging in actions that are slanted towards Ukraine and against Russia. And I think that in that context, 
the relationship between Moscow and Beijing is not anything like the 1950s. It's not an alliance. This isn't even necessarily a close partnership. But it is very much two states whose interests at this time combine in fending off the West. And Ukraine pretty much itself is almost a bystander. And there it's useful to note, China has economic ties still also to Ukraine. And that's one of the interesting things is Ukraine has not really responded to the Chinese proposal other than to say it's worth taking a look at. Yun Sun and Dean Chang, we are out of time. And I want to thank both of you for sharing your insight. Thank you for having us. And that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Yun Sun, a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the China Program at the Stimson Center based in Washington, D.C. And Dean Cheng, currently a non-resident senior fellow with the Potomac Institute for Policy Studies and a senior advisor with the U.S. Institute of Peace. I'd like to thank you for listening to today's program. This is Rick Pantaleo for Carol Castiel. Please join Carol next week for another encounter on The Voice of America. America.